our Bibles this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to John's Gospel, chapter 21. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, and they do have Bibles, and if you just wave to them, they'll be happy to get one into your hands so that you can uh, not only hear the Word of God this morning, but follow along uh, in your, uh, with your own eyes, and so take advantage of of that opportunity. Ladies retreat occurred this weekend. Great blessing. Approximately 250 women attended and we give a hearty thank you to all of you who uh, served in that event. Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and we come to John's Gospel chapter 21 verse 15. And yes I do know that that was the same passage as last week. I am not having an episode. I reserve the right to have those in the future. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray together. We thank you this morning, Lord, for the richness of your word the wisdom that is found in your word, the revelation that is there of your heart, of your will, your ways, Lord. And these are the things that are most important to us in life. And we pray that the ministry of your Holy Spirit would occur in this room this morning and our lives individually and us as a church as a whole. And everything that you want to minister to us from this passage today that, Lord, you would minister that to us and that we would hear your voice this morning. Thank you for your word. Then thank you, Lord, that we need never turn to it apart from you and your teacher. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this Bible passage, we have the record of Jesus' public restoration of the Apostle uh, Peter to public ministry following his very, very public failures. Peter had denied being Jesus' disciple three times publicly. Indeed, he had denied even knowing Jesus uh, and uh, on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. And here Jesus allowed Peter to cover each of those three public denials with a public confession of his love for the Lord. And we examined all of that last week, but there's a little bit more to this passage that, than we could get to in one week, and so we want to take note of that today. I remember being at a pastor's conference uh, many years ago, in the early days uh, of uh, starting Calvary Chapel of Modesto, the Lord starting that here in this town. And uh, one of the speakers that was speaking was a favorite of mine, and he got up and he, one of the things that he said in the session that had been assigned to him, he declared that one of the most miserable places in all of life to be in is to be in the ministry 
without a vision, without knowing what you're aiming at or how to get to what you're aiming at. And when he said that, it was a very, very powerful statement, uh, not because I was particularly looking for a vision at that moment in time, but I thought to myself, boy, isn't that the truth? If you don't know what you're aiming at, you don't know what the goal is, if you don't know what the objective is and how to get there, you have almost no chance of success. And I haven't been pastoring forever. I'm not the old wise owl, but I have pastored since 1985. And I can't tell you how many different theories and trends have passed through the body of Christ, our community, through the United States, through the whole world and the realm of Christianity in bringing so many different theories and so many trends declaring that they have discovered the surefire way to have a successful church. And the fact that these seminars and these kind of conferences are attended by hundreds and thousands and thousands and thousands of church leaders, uh, that attendance, I don't say that it always is true, but very, very often it's a confession that many, many people have found themselves in the most miserable of all places in life. They are in the ministry and at the end, at the same time, desperately in search for a vision of what the church is supposed to be and how to get there. I remember in one particularly painful experience for me early as a pastor, I watched uh, a man take a local church and in a handful of years, he completely uh, wiped it out. Uh, every time he read a new book on Christian ministry, every time he went to a new seminar on what the church was supposed to be, he yanked the church in this direction, then he yanked the church in that direction, and then he yanked the church in this direction, and he yanked the church in that direction. And pretty soon it began to dawn on the people that this man uh, doesn't know what he's doing. He does not know uh, what he's aiming at, and he does not know how to get there. And it hurt their confidence in him. They became exhausted over time, and ultimately the church uh, fizzled out and and uh, ceases to exist uh, today. And that particular story is repeated over and over and over again all over the United States on a daily basis. So all you have to do is just change the name of the pastor, change the name of the church, and the story is essentially the same. And for 25 years I've seen this in the ministry but searching for a vision kind of thing do terrible, terrible harm to pastors. And it breaks my heart because we need ten more pastors for everyone that's doing what they're doing around the world. But I've also seen this in the ministry on the search for a vision do great, great harm uh, to churches and to individual Christians who attend those churches where they become more and more confused. And as the pastor becomes more and more desperate, they become desperate as well. And I think that increasingly, and I, I don't make these observations often because they're not uh, pleasant to me. Maybe in the early years they were, but they're not anymore. And increasingly, many, many churches are not just drifting away from a biblical vision, God's vision for the church, 
but they are deliberately rejecting it and running headlong toward all kinds of man-made ideas of what the church is to be and all kinds of man-made speculations on the subject. But thankfully, the Bible does define the responsibilities of the pastor in the local church and what the goals of the local church are to be and then how to achieve those goals, the means by which those goals are achieved. And of course, we can't exhaust that subject this morning. It would take an awfully long time. And so uh, we're not going to attempt uh, to, to uh, do that. But our text this morning gives both church leaders and congregations themselves what I think is invaluable instruction uh, toward this end. And we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning speaking concerning what pastors and other church leaders need to learn from this passage. You may say, well, I'm not a church leader and I'm not a pastor. For some reason, it's in the Bible for all of us to read. And it's intended that everyone in the body of Christ eavesdrop on this conversation between Jesus and leaders within the church because apparently it has something to say to all of us so that the expectations that you bring to a local church will also be biblical. We're going to focus on three main points this morning. First, the single greatest thing that a pastor or a leader can bring to a local church and bring to their Christian service is a deep, deep love for Jesus himself. Second, love is the highest and indeed the only uh, inexhaustible motive for Christian service. And number three, the pastor is to express the greatness of his love for Jesus by tending and feeding the flock of God. And so we begin with the greatest thing that a pastor can bring to their Christian service is a deep, deep love for God. We notice in, once in verse 15, again in verse 16, again in verse 17, three times Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And that's an interesting question for Jesus to ask of Peter. Jesus could have asked Peter a million other questions other than that question. But he asks one question. And he asks it three different ways. He just repeats the same thing over and over and over again. That, or you think of all the questions that he could have asked, and he didn't. He didn't ask, Peter, will you ever deny me again? Peter, will you ever fail me again? Peter, are you the most talented, the most charismatic, the most famous, the most uh, amazing uh, person in, in the whole wide world? doesn't ask any of those questions. The reason that he doesn't, the reason that he asks, do you love me, is because Jesus was emphasizing that love for him is the single greatest quality that a minister can bring to his calling. And the personal relationship with Jesus must always mean more to the pastor than the ministry itself than the Christian service itself. And that's true not only of pastors, but of all of us and the ministries that God has called us to. Every pastor, though, as we focus on them this morning, every leader must be careful concerning this, including myself, because it's very easy to get this whole thing turned around. 
where a person begins to love the ministry more than they love the Lord, and then everything begins to fall apart. Now, where does this love for Jesus, this great, deep, abiding love, where does it come from? I think it comes from a leader never, ever moving away from the base of that cross of the Lord Jesus himself and the simplicity of the cross. Never losing our awe of God's forgiveness of us for our sins and the personal price that Jesus paid in order for our sins to be forgiven and over the greatness of his love that was demonstrated there on the cross. Jesus declared concerning a woman who had done a great demonstration of love toward her, though she had been a great sinner. And he said to a religious leader, therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And the implication is he who's been forgiven much loves much. There's that remembering that no matter how God might choose to use any leader, that we will never ever, whether we minister before a handful or we minister before hundreds of thousands, we will never be more than a forgiven sinner that Jesus saved and in his grace decided to clean up and use. The Apostle Paul maintained that attitude all the way through his life. You think about a guy that could have been given over to pride and to arrogance, but he never, ever moved from that awe of God's love for him and the fact that God saved him and kept on his trail until he was saved. He wrote to Timothy in his first epistle to Timothy, and he said, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul said. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the very thought of it produced praise in him, To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, I recognize that one of the reasons that the Lord saved me was in order for anyone in the whole wide world to look at my life and say, if God would save him, God will save me. Tremendous humility in that. Well, how do we maintain this love for Jesus? By maintaining our personal relationship with him. Typically, when a pastor goes sideways, whatever that sideways might be, and sometimes it ends up in forcing them to resign from their service to the Lord. Typically, after some number of weeks or months, after they kind of regain perspective and get healthy again spiritually, and they begin to come to grips with what was really at the core of 
their failure more often than not. And I've heard it many, many times. They will declare that they trace the beginning of the end for them back to when the consistency of their daily time with the Lord uh, began to decline. And that daily time with the Lord, that worship of the Lord in the word of God, that personal relationship side of the relationship with God began to uh, go, uh, began to stop in their lives. And so the Bible became for them no longer a place to go to learn about God, to meet with him, to receive of his Holy Spirit, to deepen the personal relationship with God. But it's a funny little thing where the Bible then just becomes this book that you turn to in order to get the next text that you're going uh, to teach from. And when that happens in a leader's life, and I tell you, I exhort myself on it, and, and we continue in our position of leadership, then we're going to do that out of some other motive than a love relationship with the Lord. If I lose that love relationship with the Lord, and yet I continue in my service to the Lord, now I'm doing it out of a different motive than a love for Him. And every other motive is a lesser motive, and every other motive is a dangerous uh, motive. There are a lot of other motives that can come into play, and every one of those motives will fail us and, uh, again, as I said, guide us into all kinds of danger. The preeminent characteristic that Jesus wants in those who serve him is not great talent, not great abilities, not great this, not great that. The single great thing, as the passage reveals to us, that he wants in those who serve him is a love for him, and nothing can take the place of that. It's as if Jesus is declaring to Peter, Peter, I'm restoring you. I'm giving you another chance. And there'll be many more chances after the second chance that I'm giving to you here. And I'm doing that because you love me. And as long as that love is there, we'll be able to work through everything else that happens to you. And, and, uh, but if that goes out of the way, then we're going to have problems. And it's only a Christian service that's born out of love that allows Jesus to fully enjoy that ministry and that service and fully participate in it. In this vein, I think about Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And this was an amazing church. He said, I know your works, Jesus wrote, your labor, your patience, that you can endure those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. And you've persevered, you have patience, you've labored with the, to exhaustion for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent, do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly, remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. I mean, this church was just an absolute hub of orthodoxy and, and uh, activity, all kinds of great things happening in this church, but it wasn't being done any longer out of a motivation of love for the Lord. A lot of other motivations had entered in to the hearts of the leaders of this church. And without the motivation of love for Jesus, I'll tell you, neither a pastor nor a ministry has a future which enjoys the presence and the participation of Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit. Let's move to point two. 
The second point, again, is love for God is the highest motive for Christian service. And it's the only unfailing, inexhaustible motive for Christian service. There are a lot of other motives for Christian service other than a love for Christ. There can be selfish motives. The desire for self-promotion. The desire to be seen. The desire to be viewed as significant or important by other people. A desire to be recognized by others. A desire for power. A desire for position. A desire for authority over other people. There can be a desire for fame. There can be a desire for money. Some people enter into Christian service out of a very, very deep-seated emotional need. They need to be needed by other people. That's what moves them into Christian ministry. They want to be loved by other people, and so they go there to find it. And on and on the list could go concerning these other motives. But Jesus knew that the only motivation that could keep Peter and the other disciples faithful to the life of the ministry that he had called them to and lay out in front of them was a motivation of love for him. Tremendous hardship lay in front of these apostles and in front of Peter. Peter would not only have a a very, very difficult life in being faithful to God's call upon his life, but as we'll see next week, ultimately he ends up being persecuted to such a degree that he's crucified upside down. That's how he dies, as Jesus reveals to him. Now that's the kind of life that's going to test Every single motive for Christian service in our life, when it's tested by death, when it's tested by hardship. And Jesus is speaking here of the fact that the only motive that will withstand all of the tests that faithfulness to the Lord will bring in our life and the fallenness of this world, the only motive that will withstand all of that is a motive of love for him. We will do out of love for him. What we would never do out of a love for ourselves or even out of a love for other people, we will do out of a love for him. It's the great, great, wonderful, perfect, uh, inexhaustible motive. Now, before we leave this particular point, I want to address one final impure motive that's as dangerous as all of the others. And I want to spend a moment or two on it this morning because, in my opinion, it's making a very terrible and dangerous uh, resurgence today. It's important to notice in Jesus' teaching here that a love for people, as important as that is, as vital as that is in a leader, it is not as important or not as supreme as our love for the Lord. It is possible to enter into Christian service not supremely out of a love for God, but supremely out of a love for people. Where if the truth were known in the heart of some, way down deep inside of them, it would be discovered that they love people more than they love God. Here's the problem with that. 
When the time comes, and it comes, and it comes often in Christian service, when you are forced to choose between pleasing people or pleasing God, when those two wills are contrary on a particular subject or direction, this person will tend to choose to please people rather than to please God. And in doing so, out of a false and misdirected love, they'll do the most unloving thing that they can do to a person because the most loving thing that we can do for people is to direct them to be obedient to God's commandments and then to abide in his love, to abide in his favor and his blessings as a result. Typically, when a ministry is led by this other kind of pastor, soon compromise concerning the standard of Scripture, the demands of Scripture, and Scripture is very demanding of us as Christians. We're not like everybody else in the world. We're special in this world with a special calling upon our lives for eternal purposes. And so they will begin to compromise the standard of the demands of Scripture, and, and, uh, and that will be introduced into the church. And then soon the pastor, instead of being a proclaimer of God's truth and the wisdom behind his commandments, now he gives his greatest attention and his efforts to explain away what is obviously the clear teaching of God's word. And I would suspect that along with pride, this undetected love for people that is greater than a love and a reverence for God is behind much of the compromise and the theological error and even the heresy that is uh, epidemic within the body of Christ at this point in time. There is a reason when Jesus was asked by that lawyer, what is the single greatest commandment in the law and the prophets? There is a reason that when Jesus was asked that, uh, uh, that particular question, that he declared that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And then the second is like unto it that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Our love for God must be greater than even our love for our neighbor for a healthy and safe love for our fellow man comes out of our love for God. And in the life of a leader or a minister in the body of Christ, a love for man that is not protected and dominated and governed by their love for God is dangerous and can easily lead to compromise and to error. The third point, the pastor is to express the greatness of his love for Jesus by tending and feeding God's flock or God's uh, sheep. Significantly, we notice again in each of the three verses, 15, 16, and 17, that Jesus tells Peter how he, as a leader, is to express his love toward him. Well, you, when we're, here we are, we're supposed to love the Lord. All right, I love you, Lord. How am I supposed to express that love toward you? Because when you love someone, you want to express that love toward that someone. And Jesus doesn't leave Peter guessing about that. Verse 15, he said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Now, when Jesus refers to sheep, who is he referring to? He's referring to his followers, us. 
<laughs> All of his children that are part of his flock. Jesus told Peter two things here. Verse 16. First, he wants his children to be tended. So just as you have sheep that are a part of the flock of a shepherd, they need to be tended, they need to be looked after, they need to be cared for and protected and led and guided and, and so forth. In the same way, in a local church, it, they need its pastor or its pastors and leaders to do the same thing. So this refers to the, uh, the less public and the more private part of the calling, where there's that tending to... God's people individually, which includes counseling or personal contact, hospital visitations, praying with people, encouraging people, exhorting others. Then the tending of the flock as a whole includes watching over the whole uh, congregation, assessing it, making sure that it's as strong as it can be, finding weaknesses and saying, how can we do this better and seeking the Lord related to that in prayer. It involves protecting a local church from spiritual wolves and uh, predators. It involves protecting the flock from disease or from false doctrine. That doesn't just happen when a church is in that kind of place and, and it is protected for years on end from those kind of things. It means that behind the scenes, shepherds out of a love for the Lord are addressing those particular issues. It means protecting, it means developing godly leadership. It means it involves keeping the church healthy spiritually and properly focused, administratively uh, strong, seeking the mind of the Lord in prayer concerning the zillions of decisions that are, are made, each one of which are going to affect at least one person, and in many cases, hundreds of people sometimes. But the sheep not only need to be led and tended, but Jesus tells us they need to be fed as well. And so twice he says, once in verse 15, again in verse 17, he declares that he wants his people to be fed. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, he declares. And two different words are used there for feed related to the sheep, but both of them mean the same thing. And they mean to supply with food to lead them to pasture. And so Jesus wants his people to be fed the most nourishing thing in the world. And how do you feed sheep? The most nourishing thing in the world that we can be fed spiritually is the word of God. You can't feed people any better than that. I think about Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 28 in this vein. Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through him, and he declared, The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. And so the Lord was likening his word to wheat, something that's wholesome, it's healthy, it's nourishing spiritually, versus the dreams of the false prophets who he likened those dreams to chaff. And so the religious leaders in, G in Jeremiah's day, they were exalting all of their man-made revelations and their ideas and their wisdom above the Word of God, neglecting the Word of God in order to exalt these other things. And God declared it all to be chaff in comparison to his Word. You can't live on chaff. <laughs> uh, you can live on wheat. But you can't live on chaff. 
you'll starve to death. The prophet Amos spoke of the absence of the word of God in a food-related way, likening the absence of God's word to a famine. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Some examples of what the word of God uniquely accomplishes in the life of the child of God. No story I can come up with will do it. No theory of mine, no wisdom from me can accomplish any of these things. The word of God alone accomplishes these things in the life of a Christian. It feeds us spiritually. So I've said it nourishes our, our inner man, our spirit, in a way that nothing else uh, does. We would starve to death uh, without that. I've always thought it was kind of corny, but I like corny uh, sometimes. Not all the time, but uh, sometimes it's good. And the old saying, uh, seven days without food will make one weak. W-E-A-K. And it's very true concerning the Bible and spiritually speaking. The longer we go without being in the Word of God, the weaker we become spiritually. So the Word of God, it feeds us spiritually. It equips us. It matures us for the life that God has called us to live as Christians in this world. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word of God protects us from lies and deceptions that fill the whole world around us. The world's deceived. It's completely deceived around us. The word of God protects us from then falling for those same deceptions. My wisdom can't do that. No leader's wisdom can do that. No amount of stories I could tell could do that. But the word of God does that. Paul wrote again to the church of Ephesus and he spoke and said, as he wrote, and he, speaking of the Lord himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, speaking of leaders in the body of Christ, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. An untaught Christian is a completely vulnerable Christian to believe every lie that comes down uh, the pike. And an untaught church is a completely vulnerable church to the same thing. The word of God exposes sin in our lives in order that we might then recognize that sin and then turn away from it. The Bible is James speaks of the Bible being a mirror. We open that Bible up and that mirror reveals us to ourselves in the privacy of our little chair, wherever we sit and have our devotional life. It reveals ourselves to ourselves spiritually. 
in a way that nothing else does, in the same way that a physical mirror reveals what we are physically when we look at it, and we want to take that little piece of spinach out but from between our teeth before we go out in public. Well, in the morning, we want to take care of certain attitudes and different things that are in our lives before we head out in the morning, and we make a dope of ourselves. And so the Word of God, it does that. It's a, it, it, is a, it exposes sin in our lives in order that we might then remove it from our lives. The Word of God cleanses our lives spiritually. Paul wrote, Again, to the church of Ephesus about the washing of water with the word. It cleanses us. It defines right and wrong for us. It defines what good and bad is for us. How priceless is that? I don't have to head out into the world in the morning and go every day. All right. I got to redefine what right and wrong is. No wonder why people are going insane. I gotta wake up in the morning, head out the front door, and now I gotta figure out for myself once again today what good and bad is. No wonder why people are collapsing under the weight of it. We go to the Bible and we learn what right and wrong is and what good and bad is. I tell you, that's priceless. The things we take for granted. I'm not rebuking myself or you over it. I'm just trying to make a point. What the Word of God does, how rich it makes us, in ways that we don't even realize the riches that we're walking in every day. No, 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 no. We could go with a, a list of what the Word of God does in a Christian's life. But most of all, the Word of God reveals to us the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom and the power and the glory of our Savior, of the Lord Himself. And it causes us to fall deeper and deeper in love with the Lord and as we learn more and more about him, we want to grow, go deeper and deeper and deeper in our relationship with him. I keep falling in love with him over and over, over and over again. The old chorus that we used to sing. And to come to know him is to fall in love with him. And to come to know him better through the scriptures is to fall more deeply in love with him. Just when you think I can't love him any more than I do. Life circumstances and then the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, they all come together and they make us love Him even more deeply than we ever thought imaginable. And thus concerning the place of the teaching of the Word of God in a Christian church, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy by the Spirit of God, 1 Timothy chapter 4, until I give, give it, until I come, Give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he said, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And then, in essence, Paul said, that's not your problem, because he goes on to say, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. It's not enough for us as pastors to teach from the Bible. We all have also have a responsibility, and it's important for you to know this. We also have a responsibility to teach the entire Bible. There's a world of difference between teaching from the Bible. Almost every Christian church teaches from the Bible. There is some passage that is read by means at least of an introduction. But it's altogether something different to teach the Bible itself and then to teach it in its entirety. World of difference between teaching from the Bible and teaching the Bible itself, where a congregation is learning more than just kind of sporadic truths from the Bible, but they're actually learning the Bible itself. What this portion of the Bible means, what that portion of the Bible means, what this book of the Bible uh, says and what the theme of this one is. And I have this problem in my life. And so I know where to go because I know the book of First Peter is an important book related to this and the learning of that. And I think about how many people. Probably some even in this room where you could spend decades in a church. And I'm not trying to put something down. I'm just saying that sometimes the best gets sacrificed to the good. And sometimes you can listen to decades of sermons and have a snippet of this and a snippet of that and a snippet of this. But then one day you walk into a church where there is the going through an entire book of a Bible or the Bible as a whole. And the light goes on and you realize that that this is something entirely different. I'm not learning a bunch of abstract truths about God and his ways. Now I'm understanding the fullness of what it is that he's saying here, where it fits in. And why it fits in the context of it, why it's important. And it's a wonderful light when that goes on. My desire is that if a person spent any length of time at Calvary Chapel Modesto, That if they ever were to be shipwrecked on a deserted island with their Bible, that that Bible would have become a friend to them. They could open up this parable and they could open up that gospel and they could open up this epistle. They could open up this Old Testament book and say, I remember what that means because I've been taught what that means. And I can commune with that great truth between God and myself in this place. And when a passage from the Bible or a book of the Bible becomes a friend to God's people as a result of the teaching of the Word of God, I can die happy. That's the goal. You'll never understand. If, if a person comes into this church and does not understand that that's my desire, they'll be completely confused until they do know it. That the Bible becomes a friend to the to a person and their personal relationship with God 
That's that's means everything to me. This great revelation of God. The pastor's responsibility is not merely to teach from the word of God, but to teach the whole counsel of God. And so the Apostle Paul, he declared to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And I might say with a certain sense of accomplishment, he said, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for, and that's a reason word, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Why teach Leviticus? Why teach Exodus? Why teach the Psalms? Why teach First and Second Chronicles? Why teach all of these books? Because it's important to know the whole counsel of God. Do you realize the book of Leviticus, people like the the series that people want to hear introduced, if anyone ever teaches the book of Leviticus, is leaping through Leviticus because it just seems like, oh, no, don't get us bogged down. here. But there is an appreciation for Christ. The whole book speaks of Christ. There is an appreciation and an understanding of Christ that would be missing from our lives if we were not exposed to the truth of Christ in the book of Leviticus. That's why the teaching of the whole book. It's the consistent teaching of the word of God that keeps a church from becoming what churches are becoming in increasing numbers today. And that is man-focused rather than God-focused. Man-exalting rather than God exalting, and the word of God being minimized for stories and for positive, man-centered, you're the most important person in the whole universe sermons. I just think to myself, go do something else in life if you're going to do that stuff. or Go on with Oprah or something. And then what is sometimes harder to endure is this, let's keep them entertained and keep them awake at all costs, no matter how carnal they are or how carnal we have to become to do it. But ultimately, it all blows up. It all falls apart because you cannot truly worship who you don't know And we come to know God best through his word and through the teaching of his word. Everything else is a game. Everything else is a charade with a time bomb attached to it where it all blows up somewhere down the road. This passage provides all of us who are pastors and leaders in the body of Christ with a very, very needed instruction and even needed exhortation. But I think, and the reason that I spend time on it this morning is that it's important for God's people to understand what it is that God expects of his leaders. So that when you walk into a congregation, you know what to expect from the leaders of that congregation. And God wants you to know what to expect We're not called to entertain. We're not called to amuse. 
And I must tell you, there is tremendous pressure on pastors today to abandon the word of God for all kinds of other things. But we're called to point people to God in worship through song and then in worship of the Lord through the study of his word. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent that Christians come to church, not necessarily here, but I think in the culture as a whole, and expecting and even demanding in their heart of hearts that they be entertained or amused or kept awake. And God forbid that you would demand and speak a sermon that would require the same attention level and diligence of attention that is demanded on the workplace or in a school setting or where you're paying for units in order to graduate, even though this is something that's infinitely more important. One or two things will happen. That kind of a situation. Either pastors are going to accommodate those wrong expectations and that carnality by becoming carnal ourselves in our methods and in our emphases. Or those among God's people who are bored by even solid Bible teaching, they'd rather be amused, they'd rather be entertained in order to be kept awake and interested that they will realize that the teaching of God's word is being done at Jesus' command. And thus there's a good reason for it being taught and for learning it. I want you to notice the Jesus repeats a personal pronoun three times in, in this feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And it's the word my, my, my. In other words, Jesus repeats. Minds Peter and all leaders sense that the flock does not belong to the pastor or to the leader. The flock belongs to Jesus. They are blood bought. We are as Christians. And thus we are not free as leaders to experiment on God's people, much less to replace God's wisdom with our own wisdom, God's truth with our own theories or our own Ideas or wisdom. This is what he wants done. And so I close with a recap of our three main points. The single greatest thing that any leader, but true of any Christian, the single greatest thing that we can bring to our ministry is a deep, deep love for the Lord Jesus himself. Second, love is the highest and the only inexhaustible motive for Christian service. And third, the pastor is to express the greatness of his love for Jesus by tending and and feeding God's people. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you even as we began for the important place that these truths have, not only in the lives of leaders, but in all of our lives as Christians. And everything, Lord, is shaking. It's all moving in the spiritual realm, even within professing Christianity, as much as everything's shaking and moving economically, 
and physically in this world and morally and spiritually, Lord. It's all a free, it's just a, it's just a free for all right now. And we thank you, Lord, that we can turn to your word and have clear instruction and definitions concerning the things that are yours and the things that are under your oversight. We thank you, Lord, for how priceless your instruction is in this vein and the privilege, Lord, of not only knowing it, but being able to, in some measure, in the power of your Holy Spirit, of obeying it. And then allowing you, Lord, to be as fully a part of our lives, our ministries, this local church as you desire to be. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.